This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. On this episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, an audacious escape by two officers from a World War I Turkish prison camp with the help of a Ouija board. And many times, of course, Jones and Hill needed to slow down the proceedings. They needed to buy time to plot the next phase of the con. They needed to sustain their captor's interest in a treasure hunt that wasn't going to happen right away. This whole con played out over nearly a year. And so one of Jones's most brilliant innovations was indeed an out in the form of an obstructionist ghost called OOO. Hello all, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Just a quick mention, if you would like to hear episodes of Most Notorious ad-free, or are just interested in general in supporting the show, head on over to patreon.com slash mostnotorious. Thank you again, and on to the show. I'm so happy to have back once more Margalite Fox. She is a former senior writer for the New York Times and a prolific, award-winning author of narrative nonfiction books, including Conan Doyle for the Defense, which she came on this very show to talk about in July of 2019. She is here today to share details from her newest book, and it is called The Confidence Men, How Two Prisoners of War Engineered the Most Remarkable Escape in history. Great to have you back again. Thank you so much, Eric. It's delightful to be back. So before we get to your new book, I heard that Conan Doyle for the defense has been optioned into a film. It has indeed. It's been optioned by a Hollywood producer. They have hired a brilliant young British screenwriter, and I've had the privilege as exec producer on the film of seeing what he's written. He's produced a terrific screenplay, and a director has now been attached to the project. So, of course, the whole industry pretty much ground to a halt during COVID, but things everywhere on the film scene are just starting up again. So I have my fingers crossed. 
Well, congratulations on getting it that far. So this book, it is such an interesting and unique story. How did you discover it? The story of the confidence men is actually mind-boggling. And I normally revile the term elevator pitch because it's so glib and kind of Gen Z. But since we've been talking about Hollywood, it's very useful for the moment for our purposes. If I were to give an editor or a producer the elevator pitch of The Confidence Men, it would go as follows. In the depths of World War I, two handsome young British officers escaped from a remote Turkish POW camp by means of a Ouija board. Now, if I pitched that, an editor would think I was absolutely off my rocker, yet every word of that pitch is true. This is a real-life piece of historical nonfiction about two remarkable British officers, Elias Henry Jones and Cedric Waters Hill, who were taken prisoner in the Ottoman campaign during World War I. Jones was captured in Mesopotamia. Hill was captured in the Sinai-Palestine campaign. They wound up being interned at a place called Yozgad, which was one of the most remote POW camps in the Ottoman Empire. It was 4,000 feet above sea level. It was ringed by impassable mountains and the Anatolian desert beyond that. The surrounding countryside, if a prisoner somehow did manage to escape, the countryside was filled with cutthroat brigands who would, you know, steal your purse and slit your throat. So Yozgad, just by its very geography, was considered escape proof. As I say in the book, it was the Alcatraz of its day. Yet many prisoners, including my heroes, Jones and Hill, longed to escape. But even given the desert, the mountains, the cutthroats, there was something worse at work, something even more forbidding that precluded escape even more forcibly. And it was this, on orders of the camp's iron-fisted commandant, an escape attempt by any one of the prisoners, even just an attempt, would bring down what they called strafing, which was the most severe reprisals against all of the other prisoners who remained behind. And those reprisals could extend from lockdown to solitary confinement, even to execution. And there were about a hundred British officers interned at Yozgad with Jones and Hill. And being men of honor and being deeply concerned for the welfare of their countrymen, they swore to one another as men of honor that they would not flee. Yet some, including Jones and Hill, dreamed ceaselessly of liberty. So for them, the urgent question was how to effect an escape plan that would not compromise their countrymen. And so what they did over almost a year, from 1917 to 1918, when they managed to get out, was foment the most extraordinary 
confidence game, what would today be called a long con, that took the form of a spirit-guided treasure hunt at the center of which was a homemade Ouija board made out of scrap materials. And little by little, Jones and Hill gradually persuaded their captors that they too were spirit mediums who could converse with the dead and could receive this ghostly intelligence on the whereabouts of a vast buried treasure hidden somewhere else in Turkey that would be their Ottoman captors to share if only the captors would lead Jones and Hill far away from camp in search of it. So that's how the con began. Now that we've given listeners some context for what the historical story is, now I'm prepared to answer your question about how did I encounter the story? And I encountered it in the most wonderful way possible, flipping through a dusty, long out of print anthology, looking for something else entirely. Uh, This was in about 2018 when my previous book, Conan Doyle for the Defense, was in production and I was casting about for what to write next. I had the vague idea that I would write something about pathological imposters, people like um, the catch-me-if-you-can guy, Frank Abagnale, or Ferdinand de Mara, who was the subject of the nonfiction book The Great Imposter, and the movie of that name starring Tony Curtis. So I took from the shelf in my home library a wonderful anthology that is, for your listeners, just the ticket, called Grand Deception, edited by Alexander Klein. It came out in 1955, and it's a compendium of essays from diverse sources on hoaxes, con games, imposture, all of that delicious stuff. But when I opened the book, as if it had been guided by the spirits, my I fell on an essay with the most captivating title I have ever seen on a work of nonfiction. The title was The Invisible Accomplice. Well, how could I not stop and read something called The Invisible Accomplice? What the essay was, was a brief presse by Elias Henry Jones, my principal hero, written in the 1930s and reprising his escape plot in brief. That essay in turn led me backwards in time to Jones's 1919 memoir called The Road to Endor, which is 400 pages of his hoax. And when I read it, two things absolutely haunted me. One was that this incredible real-life story, which is full of cunning, conniving, mortal danger, and also moments of high, dark farce that rival anything in Catch-22, had slipped into a crevice in history where it languished unknown today by most of the 21st century public, particularly the American public. Jones's memoir was published in Britain over 100 years ago, but was much less well-known here. The second thing that haunted me was this remarkable tale had at its core an enduring mystery. And the mystery was, how could so preposterous a scheme 
escape via Ouija board actually have worked, and yet it did work. Jones lived to write about it. So did his confederate, Cedric Hill, who also published a memoir uh, released posthumously in 1975. But aside from those two books by the principals, very little had been written about it in the hundred years since this caper took place. What I was determined to know was not so much how the con worked, but why. Both Jones and Hill, in their memoirs, go into great detail about here's what we planned, here's how we rehearsed it, here's how we carried it out. It's the how, but there's much less analysis of why it worked. Jones has a wonderful line in his memoir about slowly reeling his Ottoman captors in to the con game psychologically until they became full believers in the power of the Ouija board and the power of the spirit world to guide them to this non-existent buried treasure. He says they had become clay in the potter's hands. What I wanted to know as a 21st century nonfiction writer was what were the precise ingredients of the psychological cocktail that Jones and Hill had administered drop by drop to their captors to get them to that point. Absolutely. So before we get into the story more deeply, I'd love it if you could start by telling us about Jones and Hill. These were two very different people who, who just happened to find themselves in the same predicament and had to work together. Can you talk about their war journeys and how they came to find themselves together in this desolate prison camp? Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't have asked for better casting for a buddy movie because, as you say, Jones and Hill could not have been more different. And it's absolutely clear that had it not been for the war, they never would have met. Jones was born in Wales raised in Scotland, he was the Oxford-educated son of a British lord. His father, Sir Henry Jones, was a world-famous moral philosopher. And the son, Elias Henry Jones, known as Harry, was educated in Scotland, then at Oxford. He became a barrister and at the start of the war in 1914, he was living in Burma, in British Burma, with his wife and their infant first child, where Jones was working as a magistrate. He was in charge of the legal affairs of a large Burmese province. When war broke out, he wanted to volunteer. British Burma was then an administrative department of British India, so he joined the Indian Army Reserve of Officers, it was called, and he was shipped out as a gunner, which is equivalent in rank to a private, to the Mesopotamian campaign. And he arrived there in 1915. Hill, who was eight years younger at the time of the escape, uh, Hill was in his late 20s, Jones in his mid-30s. Jones was a married man and a father. Hill was a bachelor. Hill had been reared in the countryside in Australia. By his own account, he was not much for book learning, but he was brilliant mechanically, brilliant with his hands. And at the time war broke out, he was a mechanic on a large 
sheep station in Australia, uh, charged with maintaining and repairing all of the equipment that goes into a vast commercial sheep shearing operation. He had been obsessed with the idea of flight since he was a youth. Uh, flight, of course, being only about 10 years old. And what is so interesting historically is when war broke out, he wanted to join up as a trainee pilot. But military aviation was such a new phenomenon that Australia did not yet have a fully functioning military air corps. Uh, as a wonderful, for instance, and it's a footnote in my book in the Hill chapter, in 1914, when Australia sent a unit to the New Guinea campaign, they sent a grand total of one airplane, which was never unpacked from its crate. So that was the state of military aviation in Australia. Hill knew he couldn't join up at home, so he got on a ship, sailed to England, and joined the Royal Flying Corps, which was a precursor of the Royal Air Force. There, he learned to fly these biplanes that to us look as though they're made out of balsa wood and held together with Elmer's glue. You know, they look terrifyingly vulnerable. And he was sent off to serve in the Sinai-Palestine campaign, the campaign which would make Lawrence of Arabia one day famous. And he was shot down on a reconnaissance mission in Egypt in the spring of 1916. He bravely held off Ottoman forces in a solo shootout. It was just him and his gun in the desert. He held them off for six hours before being taken prisoner. Jones, meanwhile, had been in the devastating five-month siege of Kut Alamara, a small town on the River Tigris, about 200 miles upstream from the Persian Gulf. Uh, the British had an encampment there. The Ottoman forces hemmed them in, shelled them, shot them, and uh, very cannily basically cut them off from supplies and starved them out for five full months. Men were dying in battle, but they were also dying of starvation every day. And by the time the British raised the white flag at Kut in late April of 1916, 33,000 casualties had occurred on the British side and thousands on the Ottoman side as well. Uh, it was considered by some historians to be Britain's worst military defeat since the surrender of Cornwallis to George Washington at Yorktown. Uh, so Jones and thousands of other British officers were then put on a two-month forced march through desert, over mountains, until they reached the prison camp at Yozgad in the early summer of 1916. And Hill, coming from his theater, arrived there about two weeks later. So uh, they did not even meet right away. They were held in the camp in separate houses. So what was life like in the camp for these prisoners? Uh, what was their relationship with the guards, uh, the commandant? The commandant, Kiazim Bey, was aloof, wary, 
cold, uh, basically never seen, and certainly he would not have had any occasion for contact with a junior officer like Jones or Hill. They were both uh, second lieutenants by this time, so they got to go to Yozgad, which was an officer's camp. The enlisted men had it even worse. Uh, What's interesting, one of the interesting things I learned in researching this book is the Ottomans did not use barbed wire camps. They instead housed their war prisoners in existing buildings like hotels, homes, schools, and the like. So at Yozgad, the prisoners were housed in drafty, rickety, empty buildings that had once been private homes. Uh, Initially, they were housed in two houses. Eventually, a third house was added. Now, why were the houses empty? Because they had been owned by Armenian families who had all been wiped out in the genocide of 1915. So there were all these empty Armenian homes for the Ottomans to put their captives in. So in many ways, they had it easier, certainly than the barbed wire camps of World War II, the horrific Japanese camps that Laura Hillenbrand describes in Unbroken. But conditions were pretty primitive. There was no furniture. The men had, the houses were completely bare. The men literally had to nail together beds and tables and chairs from scrap wood made from broken down packing crates that were procured from the local bazaar. The houses were drafty. There was no sanitation. Just what passed for a latrine was a room within the house with a hole in the floor and a foul, disgusting pit below it that was never emptied. There was very little food at first, of of very poor quality. Uh, Over time, some of these conditions ameliorated. But as Jones is very articulate about, what became the most chronic point of distress for the men was just crushing ennui. They were with the same people, having the same conversations, trying to do the same things to fill these long, empty hours in captivity day after day after day. And it's very clear, as I talk about in the book, that these men were very much at risk for what would soon be named barbed wire disease. Uh, This was identified by a Swiss doctor, Adolf Vischer, in 1918, based on his observations of prisoners of war, and its characteristic symptoms are nightmares, depression, hopelessness, listlessness, and crushing ennui. And frankly, it's something that all of us can relate to a bit having come through the lockdown of 2020. And it was from the continuing desire to find something, anything, that would fill these terribly empty hours in captivity that the experimenting with the Ouija board and eventually the confidence game arose. And we will return in just a moment. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. We are back again. And this idea for a Ouija board, it was passed to Jones through the mail by his aunt, along with a lot of coded messages sent back and forth between he and his family. Right. These are two different things. Uh, the idea for the Ouija board was suggested overtly. There was no code involved because none was needed. Uh, one day, Jones got a postcard. The prisoners did get mail. It came at very uneven intervals. A letter could take you know, many, many months to arrive from Britain. But they did get mail from time to time. And one day, Jones, in, he's been in Yozgad about six months at this point. It's now February 1917. He gets a postcard from an aunt in Britain who, knowing that her nephew has these long, dull, empty hours to fill in captivity, suggests something that he had never considered. She suggests that he and his comrades try experimenting with a Ouija board. And so Joan says, we took it up that night, not in the hope of contacting the spirits. We didn't really believe in that, but just for something to do. So he eventually uses a Ouija board that's built from, they have to make everything themselves. This is built from a polished sheet of scrap iron. And then on top of the sheet is a wooden ring, like a wooden donut that's raised. And then around the ring, the men cut out on little slips of paper, the letters of the alphabet and arrange them randomly in this circle. And for a planchette, the pointer that comes with the Ouija board that you buy in a toy store, they again use salvage. They used an inverted water tumbler that had actually begun life as a jar of potted meat sent in one of their food parcels. They start it just as a lark. There's no thought of actually contacting the spirits, and there is certainly no thought of a con game or escape. They start it just for amusement, but over time, in Jones's hands, it turns into something much, much more. Right. Initially, they are just kind of playing around with, with the Ouija board, and nothing was really happening. And then at some point, Jones decides to have some fun with it, 
right? <laughs> That's right. He doesn't want to let his comrades down. He knows they all become depressed when uh, a lot of their efforts at amusing themselves end in boredom. They had tried poker until they got tired of it. They tried playing chess with, you know, chess pieces they'd whittled by hand. They'd even tried roulette with a wheel they'd made out of an old door. But, you know, they'd grown bored with all of that stuff over time. He didn't want that to happen with the Ouija board. Now, Jones, as it happened, had a brilliant visual memory, almost a photographic memory. So very early on, he had memorized the positions of all of these 26 random letters. And so one night at the board, he says, let's give it one last try. He closes his eyes and somebody says to the board, who are you? And the board says, S. A-L-L-Y. So they not only have a ghost, but they have a woman. And Sally proves to be quite a saucy wench of a ghost, flirting with the men as Jones, guiding the glass by visual memory, spells out her responses. The men are enthralled. Each night, more and more comrades press around the table. Joan soon introduces a whole panoply of talkative ghosts. He means to come clean. He really intends to. And eventually he wants to tell his comrades he's been guiding the glass himself with his eyes closed. But he doesn't want to spoil the fun. In fact, there is the most beautiful passage in his memoir, which I quote, uh, that I'd like to read to you. And I literally can't read it without tears coming to my eyes. It's about why he kept this hoax going among his comrades, because he knew how much it meant to them. Jones writes, With the exception of a monotonous melancholic who butted in at regular intervals to inform us plaintively that he was buried alive, the spooks were a decidedly jovial lot. They kept us in touch with the outside world. We walked with them down Piccadilly, dined with them in the truck, and tried to hear with them the music of the band. We conversed with Shackleton on his South Polar expedition, with men in the trenches in France, and with ships on the wide seas. There was no place to which we could not go, nothing we could not see with the spook's eyes or hear with his ears. A successful night at the spook board was the nearest we could get outside our dreams, to a breath of freedom. Wow. So this could well have continued on, in good fun. But there is a pivotal moment involving a character that I personally think is the most fascinating in your book, more so even than Jones or Hill, the pimple. This is a man who is despised, to some extent, by the prisoners there, because they believe he has been stealing from their mail. And he has also been paying attention to the seances, the Ouija board sessions. And suddenly he is very intrigued by what is going on, right? Right. As you say, this could have been no more than a lark and entertainment and that did its job very well at keeping morale up. Could have been no more than that until in the spring and summer of 1917, when Jones had been working the spook board for a couple of months, things started to change. And the catalyst for the change 
was one of their Ottoman captors, a young man called the Pimple. Uh, he was a young Ottoman Jewish soldier named Moise Eskenazi. He served, he was about 20 years old, he served as the camp interpreter. The camp commandant spoke neither English nor French, and so uh, it was actually absolutely essential to have an interpreter present to uh, transact any business between the commandant and the captives. He was called the pimple partly because he was very, very tiny. He was no more than five feet tall and somewhat oleaginous in manner. And indeed, because the wartime shortages and privations that were afflicting the captives afflicted the captors too. They, the Ottomans could also not get good food, good medical supplies, good anything. So indeed, the captives believed, uh, not without reason, that the pimple was pilfering stuff from some of the care packages that relatives in Britain were sending them. So he was roundly despised. Yet, indeed, of all of the captors, he's the one who really redeems himself uh, morally at the very end of the story. He's also the way in to the con game because he is the first of the captors to be converted to the workings of the Ouija board and the existence of an Ur spook who will run the mystical treasure hunt known simply as the spook. One day in the spring of 1917, the pimple who has heard about these seances that Jones has been giving sidles up to Jones and says, can the spirit find a buried treasure? And Jones, who, of course, has been trained in legal argumentation, thinks, aha, I don't know how yet, but this is something I had better make use of. It had long been rumored in the camp, where there are no secrets and rumors fly, that a wealthy Armenian of the surrounding town, anticipating the coming genocide of 1915, had converted his wealth to gold and buried it at some unknown spot in the region. And it was also rumored that the camp overseers, the Ottoman captors, had been searching for that treasure in vain. So little by little, with the help of the Ouija board, Jones reels in first the pimple, then another henchman known as the cook, and finally, after much struggle and a real psychological pas de deux, he reels in the wily, aloof commandant himself and gets them all believing that by dint of communiques from the spirits, Jones and Hill will be able to lead the captors on a hunt for this very buried gold. It's hard not to feel sorry for the pimple. I mean, he really commits to this thing, right? <laughs> He's kind of endearing this way. He fully believes everything coming out of their mouths, <laughs> hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, he's their first convert, and yeah, they get total fealty from him. And indeed, for that reason, the pimple is the source of some of the most delightful high comedy in the book. Here's my single favorite example. When you are a professional persuader, be you a con man, a TV advertiser, a, a guru of a cult, or a political demagogue, 
one of the most crucial things you have to do to get people to believe in your program and to sustain their belief is you have to manufacture confirming evidence. So you're an advertiser, you say, you know, this product works like no other, and then you prove it. Well, how are Jones and Hill going to do that in these straightened confines of an isolated prison camp with, you know, no props to work with? Uh, Here's my favorite example of how they cleverly did that. Uh, Very early on, uh, the pimple is coming to seances with Jones and Hill and the Ouija board. And of course, it's much too early for Jones and Hill to actually set the con game and the treasure hunt in motion. They haven't reeled in the other captors yet. That will take time. So they need to kind of string the pimple along. And one night, the pimple is having none of this. He's frustrated. And so he actually yells at the spook. Always you are threatening, but you never do something. I want you to manifest on me. And so Jones, seizing his opportunity, has the glass spell out, Tonight you shall die. And the little pimple is terrified. He says, No, 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 nothing serious. I I just want you to move something. I just want you to take my gloves off. And so the (laughs) spook replies, I shall move something. And so he does for that night. Jones and Hill invite the pimple to their lockdown house for a cup of cocoa. Again, that's a prized commodity amid wartime privations. It's a cup of cocoa into which they have dissolved a powerful laxative. So that night, indeed, the spook moves something. And the next morning, the pimple comes to them humbly, hat in hand, and says, It was no use sending for the doctor because I knew it was all supernatural. (laughs) And that's the genius of manufacturing confirming evidence. And a lot of this genius just is in the teaming of these two together. Jones was the architect of this elaborate story, the long con. And Hill was, as you said, a master of all things mechanical. He, He was the guy behind the scenes knocking stuff down when it was time for the spirits to physically manifest. That's right. He was literally building things. They literally had, uh, later in the con, a hunt out in the local countryside for clues that Hill had rigged and buried, clues that would start to lead them to where this grand treasure was. And Hill... In this, you could not choose a better accomplice if you are a con man. Hill, besides being, you know, a professional mechanic and skilled with his hands, was a brilliant semi-professional sleight-of-hand artist. As Jones says, he was a brilliant conjurer, the best amateur any of us had ever seen. So he used conjuring partly to... to entertain his fellow troops and allay boredom, but it also became a crucial plank in the con game platform. So there would be, uh, courtesy of Hill's sleight of hand prowess, magic letters on which writing that was important to advancing the con game seemed to appear out of thin air. Um, all co- tricks with coins, uh, all kinds of wonderful magical prestidigitation that actually served a much more urgent purpose than mere entertainment. 
right. So we're, we're all familiar with confidence men, the guys who stand out on the street corner um, shuffling shells. But what these guys did was what you call a long con, a real art. What they crafted was so complicated and they would have to adjust so quickly when something was thrown into their way. That's exactly right. Now, you had asked me earlier about secret codes, and this is a wonderful part of the story, not only for Jones and Hill as part of the con game, but for all prisoners in that era, because in wartime, correspondence both to and from the prison camp was vetted by military censors. So in order to alert their families in Britain to their own condition, the prisoners had to resort to very canny codes, and likewise the families writing back to them if they wanted to give them news about the progress of the war, which was intelligence strictly forbidden to POWs, they would have to use codes of their own. So Jones, for his part, because he was a native speaker of Welsh, very often used Welsh words that would go right by the censors, but would alert his family to what was going on. In the other direction, this is my absolutely favorite bit of how families relayed war news. Uh, A family might write to a prisoner in Anatolia, let's say, last night, father's trousers fell down. Well, why would you bother writing an international letter in wartime about father's trousers falling down, even if such a thing had happened. Why? Because in British slang of the period, one of the slang words for trousers was bags. So what you were actually saying was, dad's bags, i.e. Baghdad, fell last night. Insanely clever. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and I think it was all that more effective because he was communicating with family members. I mean, they have a a certain bond, a certain understanding. Right. Jones's primary letters were to his wife, who was also Welsh and spoke Welsh, and to his father, who was Welsh. Uh, His mother, interestingly, was Scottish, and so occasionally there would be um, Scottish references. When he wanted to say something about what his Turkish captors were up to at that moment. Uh, In one communication to his mother, he used the word bubbles as if it were proper name, something like, please give my regards to dear old bubbles. It's believed that bubbles stands for bubbly jock, which was a Scottish slang word for a turkey, a turkey that you eat. But in this case, it meant the Turks. Here's what the Turks are doing. Back again after a quick break. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine! Cat 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. From Fort Sumter to the Battle of Gettysburg. From the Emancipation Proclamation to Appomattox Courthouse. From the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Compromise of 1877. From Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. To Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. And we're the hosts of a podcast that takes a deep dive into that era when a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. And we have returned. So speaking of coats, the con didn't only involve his Ouija board. Jones had decided Hill, of all the guys in the camp, he decided Hill was the one to team up with. He thought he would have his best chance of escaping with him. Um, but, but Jones's dilemma was that the powers that be had no idea who Hill was um, because Hill was the guy behind the scenes. And he needed to bring Hill to the attention of the commandant. So Jones introduced Hill as a medium through a telepathy act that they created together, an act that worked because of an elaborate set of codes that they dreamed up. That's right. Jones and Hill had a two-pronged mandate, just as they needed to persuade their captors that they were spirit mediums who could read the thoughts of the dead. They correspondingly needed to further the con by persuading the captors and their fellow captives that they were thought readers who could read the minds of the living. And what's so striking historically is these two ideologies went hand in glove and they were very much in the air in the late 19th and early 20th century. This to me is the most fascinating historical aspect of the story and it helps answer for me the central question of how could this cracked-brained sounding scheme ever have worked? Spiritualism, the belief that the living can 
communicate with the dead arose in the mid-19th century in this country, reached its apex in the Victorian era, and then, of course, had a resurgence when the war began in 1914, when Gold Star families were desperate to grasp at any straw that might allow them, seemingly, to communicate with their fallen loved ones. And there was a whole swarm of unscrupulous spiritualist charlatans who would bilk these Gold Star families out of lots of money and hold fake seances where their dead relatives appeared. Uh, That's actually the primary reason that Jones published his memoir in 1919 to show how incredibly easy it is to become a spiritualist charlatan, because of course that's exactly what he and Hill had to turn themselves into to escape from prison camp. So if spiritualism is the belief that minds can communicate between living and dead, so too, correspondingly, the belief in thought reading or telepathy was the belief that minds could communicate between living and living. And that also was a very big deal in the late 19th and early 20th century. What's fascinating is that even eminent men of science of this era believed that these things were at least possible, if not actual fact. The most famous being, of course, Arthur Conan Doyle, who was trained as a doctor, became an ardent believer in spiritualism. It sounds crack to us looking back from the perspective of 21st century rationalism, but for men of this period, scientists of this period, lay people of this period, These were legitimate empirical questions because the era had seen these unprecedented developments in communications technology, things like the wireless, the telephone, the phonograph, which allowed disembodied voices to sail through the ether. Phonograph cylinders allowed bygone men and women to speak to us as if from beyond the grave. So the reasoning went, If these things are technologically possible, then what is to say that communication across the ultimate divide between the living and the dead is not possible too? So it was very much an authentic empirical question being investigated by eminent scientists of the period. So here again, Jones and Hill picked exactly the right historical moment to have the chance of success of a con game that centered on spirituality. Right. I'd, I'd love it if you could address this briefly. Uh, Jones was obviously manipulating the Ouija board. He'd memorized the locations of all the letters so he could do it blindfolded. He even put uh, nicks in the board so he could adjust his hands by feel. Uh, but I know when, when I was in college, uh, once upon a time, I experimented with a Ouija board with, with my friends, like a lot of kids do, you know. It, it seemed exciting at the time. Um, and when we were doing it, it was spelling out messages. It was pretty freaky. We were not intentionally trying to deceive anyone. It, it seemed like it was doing it on its own. How do you explain that? That's one of the most fascinating things I learned in my research. And I knew going in, without knowing what the answer would be, that I would be obliged to explain why a Ouija planchette, be it Jones's inverted drinking glass or the little lightweight plastic table that you get with a Ouija board 
that you can buy today in any toy store. Why, if you're very relaxed and put your fingers on it lightly, why it does seem to move of its own accord. And indeed, it is because of a physiological phenomenon called motor automatism. And this was first identified way back in 1852 by an English doctor. And he says it's basically a state of reverie where you are directing your hands, you're moving your hands and thereby moving the planchette under them, but you're not aware of having done so. One of the most delightful finds for me in this book was seeing which historical figure got to make a cameo appearance in the narrative at this point. And that's always one of the great pleasures of writing historical nonfiction is to see who wanders into your story. And so in this story, we had Lawrence of Arabia, which is not that surprising because he was in Mesopotamia briefly before he was in the Sinai-Palestine campaign. We also have Mark Twain, and I will leave it to readers to see how and where he comes in. But the cameo that delighted me more than any other came in the discussion of motor automatism. I read that this phenomenon was established first in 1852, and it was researched further by an American psychologist in the 1890s, a woman named Gertrude Stein. And I thought, oh, what a charming coincidence. It's the same name as the avant-garde early 20th century writer. It is the avant-garde early 20th century writer. As an undergraduate at Radcliffe, Gertrude Stein was a student of the great psychologist William James, brother of Henry James. And her first published writing of any kind was a scientific monograph published in the 1890s in which she reported on her own experiments with motor automatism. And what's so wonderful about it is she put herself into this state of reverie and started to do automatic writing, which reads like this kind of rambling stream of consciousness. And it looks like nothing so much as the early 20th century experimental prose of Gertrude Stein. So maybe that's where she got it from. Yes, yes. So we just don't have time to get into all the details of this very intricate con, uh, which ultimately gained the trust of the camp commandant. It's all laid out in the book. But just to let listeners understand, basically Jones and Hill created a series of clues that they tantalizingly dangled in front of their captors. And they made the first couple of clues easy to follow but the third was meant to lead to their freedom. Let, let's just, I don't want to stray into spoiler territory here. So let us just say they made up the promise of three clues. And indeed, with for two of them, they were careful to have them come true. Manufacture of confirming evidence. The third one, we will say, was held in abeyance. But they had reeled their captors in so deeply that they were literally on the verge of having the captors lead them out of camp to search for that elusive third clue. And it should be pointed out that here these prisoners have gotten their captors to the point where it is the camp's iron-fisted commandant himself who will be leading them along their escape route and the Ottoman government, which will be paying the travel expenses for their escape. 
and the consequences of their being exposed as tricksters were no laughing matter. If their hoax were discovered at any point, it would have meant a bullet in the back for each of them. So they had to be more vigilant than the most hyper-vigilant con men. And indeed, as can happen with any caper narrative you can think of, the Ocean's Eleven movies, just as they are on the eve of success, they are literally about to have their captors lead them out of camp. The entire plan goes south, and they have to not only save their means of escape, but save their own skins. So they very quickly have to shift gears and go to plan B. And plan B is going to be even harder to pull off. Plan B is to somehow get themselves committed to an insane asylum in Constantinople, then the capital, present-day Istanbul, and persuade some of the most learned psychiatrists in Eastern Europe that they have authentically gone mad on the slender, slender chance that if they can be medically certified as insane, they will then be repatriated to Britain in a formal exchange of sick prisoners. So the last third of the book is the one flew over the cuckoo's nest part, and that's where things turn very, very dark. So there's a a lurking danger hovering around this story. Uh, Not a danger just to the two of them, but as, as you said earlier, anyone caught escaping from this prison would bring wrath down on the rest of the camp. So part of this tightrope walking done by Jones and Hill was meant to protect their friends. They needed to gather some kind of evidence to hold over the commandant's head that could implicate him should their plan fall apart. That's exactly right. And they have succeeded in taking their captors on these little day trips to dig up the first two clues, which Hill has carefully made up, sealed in these uh, soldered together tin cans and planted in the countryside around the camp. And on one of the clue hunts, Hill actually wields a tiny hidden camera and he gets three shots of the captors and Jones kneeling together in obvious cahoots, digging up one of these clues. And it's the negatives of those pictures, which they entrust to their comrades left behind, that will be the life insurance policy for the rest of the camp, because it clearly implicates the camp overseers in being in some kind of league with their own prisoners. And you actually have one of those photographs in your book, which is pretty cool. That's right. My favorite thing about the clue hunt, and for people who are inclined to get the audiobook, I particularly recommend the audiobook in this way. I had the pleasure of listening to MP3s uh, for various readers who were auditioning to do the audiobook. And we chose the wonderful Welsh voice actor, Richard Elfin, uh, because there are a lot of Welsh words in the book that Jones uses as code in writing home, and Richard Elfin is fluent in Welsh. But my favorite use of Welsh comes in this clue hunt where 
uh, Hill is wielding a camera. He knows he's going to have to have Jones hold the group very still as they dig for this buried clue because shutter speeds were not that quick. It also happens to be a very cloudy day. So he hisses to Jones, you're going to have to pose the blighters. And Jones says, I have just the thing. When we get to the site where the clue is buried, I will invoke the treasure test of the headhunting was of Burma. And Jones had given his captors this malarkey about how he'd been taken prisoner by this fierce tribe when he was serving in Burma. He'd learned all their magic and then been let go. And he says, I will now recite the Wa's ritual incantation. Hold perfectly still and do not move a muscle. And so he swings into what's supposed to be this Burmese magic incantation. It's actually an 18th century Welsh love song. And Richard Elfin on his audition tape sang it so beautifully that he just blew us all away and he got the job. It's such a great scene in the book. Um, Once that first clue had been confirmed and the commandant gets that gold coin, the the cook starts dancing around, slobbering kisses all over them. It's pretty funny imagery. That's one of the the scenes of great high comedy. And my other favorite thing about uh, they're taking their Ottoman captors to hunt for these clues is uh, one of the two clue hunts in the book takes place on the 1st of April, 1917. And so as they're on the way there, the clue is buried, you know, a mile or two out in the countryside with the pimple translating for the other captors, Jones regales them all with tales of this British custom of April Fool's Day and the you know, lively manner of pulling pranks on unsuspecting people. And the Ottoman captors hear this and laugh and laugh at this curious custom. Right. (laughs) So one of the genius moves that Jones pulls off is that he creates the perfect spirit villain, which, as you explain in your book, it was the perfect out for them whenever anything went on that kind of spun out of control. His name was O.O.O., and he was supposed to be the ghost of the dead Armenian who buried the gold and created the clues that they were attempting to uncover. That's right. One of the most crucial tricks that any master of influence has to have in his arsenal, uh, whether this is a confidence man, man or a stage magician, because things can always go wrong on stage, is an out. It gives you plausible deniability when something is wrong. It, it kind of allows you to hit a reset button. And the, many times, of course, Jones and Hill needed to slow down the proceedings. They needed to buy time to plot the next phase of the con. They needed to sustain their captor's interest in a treasure hunt that wasn't going to happen right away. This whole con played out over nearly a year. And so one of Jones's most brilliant innovations was indeed an out in the form of an obstructionist ghost called O-O-O or Ooh. We actually had to discuss how to pronounce it on the audiobook. I'd always thought of this ghost as Ooh, because it sounds more spooky. Uh, Jones renders it in his memoir with three capital O's. Uh, On the audio, we went with O-O-O. So Jones creates this ghost. O-O-O is 
the departed spirit of the murdered Armenian treasure owner, and he will not let anyone get his hands on the treasure. So at points when Jones needs to slow down the proceedings or when the captors who are attending a seance ask the Ouija board for an answer that Jones is not yet prepared to give them, he has, oh, 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 hijack the proceedings, and you would see the glass starts to move jerkily and spasmodically, and just as the spook is on the point at revealing someone's name that they need or the existence of a clue that they need, oh, 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 will seize the glass, and the spook will cry, oh, I'm beaten, I can never give you the name now. And that was their brilliant, brilliant out that allowed them both to buy time, withhold information, yet sustain the interests of their marks in this con game. Another fascinating part of the story was the way that they feigned madness. Can you talk about how they did that? How they geared themselves up to pull something so difficult off. The cover story they gave for both of them suddenly going mad and needing to be transported to the hospital in Constantinople for observation. And of course, they would you know, plan to get repatriated from there. The cover story they gave was that their work as spirit mediums had driven them mad. Now, again, that sounds risible to us today, but in the late 19th and early 20th century, it was widely believed, including by distinguished psychiatrists, that spiritualism, and in particular the use of Ouija boards, drove people mad. And we have a wonderful headline from an American newspaper from around this time, just about uh, some American husband and wife, totally unconnected to my story, but it says, driven deaf by the Ouija board, couple lust for blood, their children must be removed from home. You know, thousands of cases like this, the asylums are full. And uh, this was absolutely believed. Houdini, who of course spent much of his career debunking spiritualist charlatans, uh, fervently believed that uh, the use of the Ouija board led to insanity. So this was this crazy cover story for that for Jones and Hill was actually eminently plausible because of the times. And so they were indeed transported to the mental hospital in Constantinople. Um, one of their wonderful fellow prisoners at Yozgad was uh, an Irish military doctor, Doc O'Farrell. And so he coached them very carefully. They He was one of the few people whom they told about their escape plot. And so he, knowing they would have to be admitted to this hospital and be tested by specialists, he coached them very rigorously. Uh, it was thought it would be more convincing if each of them came down with a different kind of insanity. So Hill became a religious melancholic where basically all he did, poor guy, all day long was sit motionless and cry and read his Bible. By the time the con was over, he'd read through the entire Bible word for word seven times and you know made his eyesight start to go. Jones had something called um, general paralysis of the insane, which, because uh, it also involves muscular degeneration is, is a type of madness that was brought on by syphilis and involves sort of grand, boastful grandiosity and irrational delusions and all sorts of stuff. So they were very carefully coached and they played their parts to the hilt. 
And from Jones, especially because he could have all these manic antics, there are some moments of high dark comedy that result, but it was a terrible time for both of them, and they wound up having to play those roles under constant surveillance in the hospital unremittingly for much, much longer than they ever expected. It was really terrible, and in the case of one of those two men, the treatment he received very nearly killed him. Yeah. The night before they were scheduled to be examined, Jones and Hill forced themselves to not fall asleep so they would appear adequately deranged. <laughs> right. It was, as, as Jones writes, to get the mad look into our eyes. And they would drug themselves with all sorts of um, things that the doctor had given them before they left camp to give them this kind of dull, glazed look. Um, the, the mortification of their own bodies was just tremendous and terrible, but they were doing absolutely anything they could to stay in character as counterfeit madmen. So I don't think this is giving too much away, but but I have to mention it because it really showcases their brilliance in all of this. So they not only wanted to, to escape, but they wanted to give the prisoners they had left behind a gift. And again, no one liked the pimple very much. So they somehow talked the pimple into quitting, <laughs> quitting his job at the camp. <laughs> I mean, that was some pretty incredible manipulation right there. That's right. They they wanted to give the captives they would believe it, be leaving behind not only the life insurance policy in the form of the incriminating photographs of their them and their captors digging up clues, they wanted to give them one last gift in the form of ridding them of the pimple forever. So without giving too much away, they persuade him that he can make a grand career by volunteering for the front lines. And so they actually have the pimple with them in Constantinople for much of that time, which is both extremely useful for them in terms of communicating with their doctors and also extremely wonderful for me narratively because the comedy continues as supplied by the pimple. I've never found a pimple so entertaining in my life, and I've had a few. Uh, as a, a footnote, and this is literally a footnote in the book, um, it's a, an educated guess, a reasonable guess, that he was called the pimple because he was very short. This we know. Um, Jones at one point calls him that five-foot nothing of impertinence, and also because he was kind of oily in his manner, at least to the other prisoners at first. My husband, who is a film critic and film professor, also found what conceivably is another source of the name, and there's a nice footnote about it in the book. There was a very famous British silent film character called Pimple, who featured in a string of short silent comedies released between about 1912 and 1918, he was played by a well-known stage comic, a man called Fred Evans, and the pimple was depicted as this kind of baggy pants buffoon who was very childlike and landed himself in a series of scrapes in film after film. The pimple films were very widely seen in Britain and were actually said to have rivaled Charlie Chaplin's early pictures in their popularity. So it was well within the realm of possibility that many of these British officers who landed at Yozgad in 1916 
would have seen some of the pimple films. So the name may also have been influenced by that. Interesting. So I wanted to ask you this question the last time I talked to you, but I didn't for some reason. You wrote obits for many years for the New York Times. Was that as fascinating as it sounds? And did writing historical life stories help prime you for writing historical nonfiction? It, Obits, which of course historically was the considered the Siberia of the American newsroom, is actually the best beat in journalism because it's the most narrative beat. You know, it, when you think of what an obit does, we're charged with taking our subject from the cradle to the grave, and that gives them a built-in narrative arc. So I and my colleagues had this wonderful situation for years on end of being paid to tell people's stories. Um, I absolutely believe that any kind of daily journalism is the best training in the world for any kind of book writing, and particularly narrative nonfiction, because the entire structure of a nonfiction book exists in microcosm in the structure of a news story. Uh, the structure is basically heuristic. You're, it's that classic journalistic inverted pyramid where you put the most broad-based general information first and then finer and finer detail. And you have kind of, as in a fractal, a series of repeating inverted triangles going all the way down. And then the story as a whole is one large inverted triangle containing them all. And if you take that structure of, say, a thousand-word news story and grid it up a hundred times, then voila, you have the structure of a book. So indeed, uh, doing daily journalism of any kind was intensely helpful to me when I made the transition to writing books. So your book just came out on June 1st, right? And you have a website, which is helpful for anyone interested in checking you or your work out. I do. It's simply my first and last names, margalitefox.com. And your book is getting really good reviews. I'm very pleased. We have a wonderful review in the New York Times in the summer reading issue, which will be published in print this Sunday, June 6th, and is already online. And we are very happy to say that uh, it is in the issue of the following week, June 13th, one of the editor's choices, if I may, um, what they say in their capsule description is, Fox makes page-turning and edifying delight of the improbable saga of two British officers who sprang themselves from a remote Ottoman prison camp during World War I using a Ouija board, mind control techniques, feigned madness, and bountiful reserves of creativity. Well, well, thank you again. This has been just marvelous. It's my great pleasure. And the book again is The Confidence Men, How Two Prisoners of War Engineered the Most Remarkable Escape in History, published this June 1st by Random House. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Riminus, and have a safe tomorrow.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.